Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Hey, we are continuing today our, our series in Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis 6, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. And man, folks, we are, we are coming not just to want, you got to stop and put this together. We're not just coming to one of the big events in the Bible, one of the really big stories in the Bible. We're, we're coming to one of the really big events in the history of planet Earth. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there's a number of cultures that wrote about the flood before the Bible did. I mean, historically, those writings happened before the, the writings in the Bible. And I've heard some people just in silliness say, oh, look, the, the Bible's just copying other cultures or other religions. It, it, you know, it's drawing from that. It, that's stupid. <laughs> the reason the Bible's writing about it, the reason all those cultures wrote about it is because it happened to this day, the biggest event on planet earth. It would be weird if it didn't show up in any other historical writings. We, we absolutely should anticipate that. So yeah, I believe in the flood. I believe in a worldwide flood. I believe in Noah. I believe in the ark. There's good historical. There's good scientific reason to do that. But the main reason I believe in it is because Jesus believed in it. And I think he has it on pretty good authority. So we are uh, looking at today, the next two Sundays, so three Sundays, we're looking at four chapters, six, seven, eight, and nine. I'm going to try to cover, there's a lot in these four chapters going on, and I'm going to try to do it in three sermons. You probably will doubt my ability to do that after today, because I'm only going to get 13 verses covered today. We're barely going to get halfway through chapter six, but... Wow, I mean like any 13 verses in the Bible, these would rank in the hardest. These are hard verses to look at, they're hard to understand. Genesis 6 probably gives us one of the top two or three patches in the Bible that's like, there's no good answer to this. Uh, and, and so there, there's just a, a, a lot going on. These are not feel-good passages. Uh, but we're gonna, we're gonna try to take these on today. I think, I think there's as much to understand and explain in these 13 verses as, as there is the whole rest of the story. So two big ideas, and there's more than two big ideas, but two that we're gonna try to take on today is understanding just how bad it was. Just understanding how bad the earth, how bad humanity was that led to this. And then the second one, and this is, again, it's one of the most difficult concepts, I think, in the whole Bible. God's sorry he made us. Just that line alone, God being sorry that he made us. So there's the two places we're going to try to go today. Let's look now, chapter 6, verse 1. I'll begin reading. It says, Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women, and they took and, and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, "My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than a hundred and twenty years." 
In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites, your, your passage may say Nephilim, uh, may just say giants, uh, in that, sometime after giant Nephilites lived on the earth, for whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, Nephilites were the product. That, that's what this verse is saying. Nephilites were the product of that. Of, of that. Um, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. They, they were like legends. The Lord observed the extent, verse 5, of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt, So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along the earth. So kind of a reminder, we, back when we started this series, can you believe we're already nine weeks in? Back when we started this series, we talked about when this was written. This was written during the day of Moses. God gave this information to Moses. So it's being written around 1400 to 1500 BC. Well, obviously not just this story, but everything from Genesis 1 to 11 is happening thousands of years before Moses. So here, that inspiration does not mean this in every place, but here in Genesis 1 to 11, it's just straight up dictation. That, that's how I understand what is happening here. God is literally dictating to Moses Genesis 1 1 all the way through this. And so God is answering again. No wonder that cultures and religions are writing about a flood because it was a massive event on the earth. And so just imagine God says, hey, Moses, I want you to know. I want the people of Moses' day to know. I, I want the people of 2023 to know. As you look back on this monumentous event, I want to explain to you why it happened. I want to explain to you where it came from. And it is a story, it is a story of abandoning God for power and pleasure. Now that's not a unique story, is it? That, that's not unique to Noah's time or before Noah's time. No, that, that thread has run all the way through humanity. We like power and we like pleasure. And so in this, God is, is beginning to explain how bad it was. Verses 1 through 4, and I'll, I'll get to those in a second, but just understand what God's doing there. That's just illustrative. It's not saying this is the only sin. This is the only reason. It's an illustration of just how bad the sin was and what it was producing 
in humanity and throughout the earth. I would imagine much of the same sins being committed in the days of, of Noah are, are the exact same as, as the sins of you and I, the, the, the sins of our day. Maybe if there's a difference, it's not in, in what they did, but maybe the depth and the coverage. The depth of the sin and the coverage of the sin. Now, what do I mean by, by depth? Well, I can, I can tell a lie and I can be a pathological liar. I, I can have a moment where I don't communicate the truth and then I can lie when it doesn't even benefit me. It's just, the, it's just the norm. It's just more natural for me to lie. You see what I'm saying? Now take that kind of thinking and apply it not just to lying, but every kind of sin. It wasn't just an event, a mistake, a bad moment. It was a way of life. Sin was the norm. It was the natural way to respond everywhere, every time, in, in everything. And, and in the midst of all that, there is this gross immorality and perversion. And I use those two words because that seems to be what verses 1 through 4 are talking about. Now, just put this out there as we were reading this and you're thinking, gosh, these are some of the strangest verses I've ever read in the Bible. That's okay. They're, they're weird. I, I think... This is a place it's okay to say, hey, God, that's a little weird. Uh, as a matter of fact, stop and do the math. It's so weird what's going on here that God said, okay, I'm cleaning the earth of this. And so we, we got no evidence. We've got no real understanding of what's being talked about here. When we look, at, okay, so we're trying to, what are the sons of God? What are, what are they doing with these women? What are the, the Nephilites, the Nephilim? What is all of this? And there's probably three or four, maybe even five views, five ways of trying to understand and explain this. Now, three or, let's say there's five. Three of those are just stupid, okay? We're not, you don't, you just, you just say, you mean you're just stupid. One or two of them are pretty good. I, I obviously go with one. But I don't, I don't go with one view because it's the answer. All the views have a problem. All, all of the views have a, a little bit of a hole in it. So let me ex- try to explain the view I have and how I try to plug that hole, okay? So sons of God. I don't find that real difficult to understand what that is. That phrase, sons of God, is used throughout the Bible to refer, not solely, but quite often to refer to angels, both the good ones and the bad ones. Sons of God can be angels like we think of them and and angels, the demons, okay? Here, it would be a reference to demons. So that I'm very confident of. I believe we even have a passage that refers to these angels right here. Listen to this. This comes from uh, Jude, verse 6. And by the way, we've, we've gone to Jude two weeks in a row now. Isn't that kind of interesting? We're, we're opening, we're understanding the, the opening pages of the Bible, and now twice we've gone to the second-to-last book, the second-to-last letter of the Bible, to get some elaboration and, and some understanding. So Jude, verse 6, says this. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them. Let me stop right there so we understand what that means. Even when angels, even when demons are fighting and rebelling against God, he still draws their boundaries. They're not fighting and rebelling because God doesn't have control over them. He says, okay, yeah, you can fight me, but you stop right here. 
Good, good story to understand. Hear what that sounds like. Look, see what that looks like. Job chapter one and two. You'll, you'll, you'll see that, you'll see Satan doing wrong and you'll see God telling you, you stop right here. So God has a- a- angels and tells them what, what you can do and what you can't do, even with the ones rebelling against them. And we just tend to think of, you know, there's two angels. There's the, the good ones, and they're up in heaven, and then there's the bad ones, and they're down in hell, and I think they're real ugly, and they like fire, right? I mean, we've really got a simplistic understanding of that. Actually, everything I just said is nowhere in the Bible, the Bible never describes good angels as exclusively in heaven and bad angels exclusively in hell. What it describes them as being in the heavenlies, both the good ones and the bad ones. The good ones and the bad ones have to report to God, for lack of a better word, periodically. They're coming before God. He's drawing their boundaries. Okay, so they're, they're in the heavenlies, they're, they're fighting out their war. Their war has ramifications in our physical world. Their war has ramifications in your life and in my life. And there's not just two kinds, there's classes of angels. Ephesians 6, a handful of other passages would point to point to this. So there's a, a, a variety of angels. So there's a variety of angels. God has drawn their boundaries and the ones being talked about here in Jude 6 somehow got out of, broke out of that boundary. Okay, now let me finish the sentence and you'll see that. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Now, notice it says securely chained, because all the other angels, and I'm talking just about the bad ones here, all the demons are loose. They're all free to roam. They have to report to God. They're in our world. They're in the heavenlies. But there's a group of angels that God has already locked up and thrown away the key. Now, what did they do? What is Jude 6 referring to? I believe Jude 6 is referring to Genesis 6. I can't, I can't definitively say that, but that's what I believe. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons is kind of what I just said a moment ago. Jude, in a very short letter, Jude's one of the shortest letters in the Bible. In a very short letter, three or four times, he refers to events in Genesis So clearly as the Holy Spirit is inspiring and guiding him, Jude has Genesis on the mind. So I I think he is referring to these angels right here that had these relations with women and produced these really weird, powerful, strange offspring. Now, what is the problem with my view? Jesus told us angels don't reproduce. Okay, that's kind of a problem in everything I just said. Angels don't reproduce, or at least they don't reproduce with other angels. Remember, somebody was asking Jesus about marriage in heaven, and he says, no, you'll be like angels, and he's not referring to wings and halos. He's saying, no, like the angels, when you're in eternity in heaven, you won't, you won't reproduce. So we get the idea there that angels don't reproduce. Okay, so then what is happening? So I'm trying to work on this thing. Okay, what, what's happening here? And I, I think of the New Testament. I think of the Gospels. We see a lot of demons inhabiting people during the gospel. You know, when Jesus is going throughout the cities and the countries, he's casting out a lot of demons. You know what's interesting? Before the gospels, the Old Testament, you rarely, if ever, see that happening. 
After Jesus ascends back to heaven, you rarely see that happening. So why is there so much demon possession when Jesus was walking on earth? I like to think of it real simply because the theater of operation changed. You know, what have I said? That the demons, the angels, there's this spiritual warfare going on. It takes place in the heavenlies. When Jesus centered himself in physical form on the earth, the battle moved right here to the ground in a very physical way, and and demons were inhabiting people. I'm wondering, did possibly demons inhabit regular men, regular people, and then in that, in that physical relationship, Something of their DNA, that sounds strange, something of their DNA came through to produce this very weird thing, this very weird thing going on. You know, when I look again back in the Gospels, when people were inhabited with with, uh, demons, I mean, Jesus talked about one guy kept throwing himself in the fire, but he didn't burn up. He, they, they would chain them. They couldn't hold them. So there's strength. There's these weird powers and abilities. Now, when I say that, don't think, hey, I think that'd be kind of cool. Nothing worse could ever happen to you than to be inhabited by a demon. There's no benefit, zero, ever, not for a singular second. There's no deal to make with the devil where and being inhabited by a demon is ever going to be anything you want for a single second. While that was happening, though, these strange and awful things would happen with these people. So it, it, it makes me wonder, okay, is, is that what is going on here? And it... You know, this part kind of makes sense to me. God chapter 1, God chapter 2, God chapter 5 has said, I've made people in my image. And right in the middle of that, we have our fall into sin. And as a product of that fall, God looks at Satan and says, from the seed of Eve, I'm going to crush your head. So what if, what if Satan's thinking, hey, well, I, 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 I can stop that. Now, first of all, d- demons, the demonic realm, loves to counterfeit what God is doing, duplicate what God is doing. That's how they deceive you and I, and we will call something of God that, is, that can be very demonic. That's why it's really important we're in tune with God, the Scriptures and the Spirit, but that's how they'll deceive. But what if Satan is thinking, hey, I know the way to, you know, to beat God to the punch. I know a way to short circuit this prophecy that through the seed of Eve, I'll be crushed. I will get inside the human DNA and I will so corrupt them that they'll never crush me because they'll all be a product of me. Now, I, that's, that's, I wrote that. Look at that right there. I think it's kind of brilliant. And incredibly strange all at the same time. Like, what in the world, God, does that mean? Like I said, when you're in these first 13 verses, you're not, you're in a place, it doesn't match anything else in the rest of the Bible. This is weird and it is strange. And let me remind you, I think God thought the same thing. I think God said, hey, this has gotten so strange, so weird, so out of control. There's just one thing left. I've, I've got to rid the planet. Now, I don't know how many, but perhaps it had reached that kind of tipping point where so much of the human population was affected by this. You know, folks, when we, we are never managing our sin. 
I, I think that's really a big part of what the flood is going to show us. We always think we're managing it, but we're never managing our sin. It's always going to a darker and a deeper place than we imagined. It's always going to have a cost beyond what we ever imagined. Jeff Kinley wrote a book called As in the Days of Noah. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. It's actually quite short. gives some incredible insight uh, to the flood, to the to those days, but its purpose is not actually the flood. He's kind of taking what we can learn from that and then how today we understand prophecy moving forward. It's a, it's a great read. Be good for you on the beach if you still have that in front of you this summer. But he made this, this point. We see a spiral down once we step outside of sex and marriage. Remember, that's what God gave us. God gave us sex and marriage. But when we step out of that, you know, then we're at sex outside of marriage. We're at unrestrained sex, perverted sex, abusive sex, depraved sex, and even now in this case, demonic sex. Now, that phrase is not meant to say that the moment an individual steps outside of marriage, that they're going to run that whole gamut. Because an individual's not going to run that whole gamut. They, some may... But, but they're not necessarily all going to run that whole gamut. But what that is saying is whether it's an individual or not, when you and I step into any place outside of marriage, we become a part of adding the energy, the synergy that adds that, that downward spiral. A lot of us in here would look at things going on in our world today and say, man, look how... Look at where we've gone. I wonder how many of us in this room contributed to it. It's amazing the immorality that you and I think of today is really being quite innocent. Sin breeds sin. And we're not in control of it. We're not in control of where it goes. We're not in control of where it ends up. Whether I can understand all of the pieces of this, I can clearly see what it's trying to communicate to us. And you know, it doesn't stop there. Remember, one through four is just an illustration of one thing going on. Verse 11 adds violence. It's completely violent. I think between the sex and the violence, what we kind of need to imagine here is complete and total anarchy. You kill who you want to kill. You rape who you want to rape. You take what you want to take. You say, you do what you want to say and do. It is truly survival of the fittest. It it is kill or be killed. This is the world that that we're living in. You know what? I bet right now some of you are thinking, boy, it's, it's like the days of Noah now, isn't it? As a matter of fact, I I bet when we describe this, don't some of us kind of have in our mind a city in the United States right now? We watch what's going on in the streets. We hear about the violence, maybe the the perversion that is kind of centered in that city. Boy, I bet that's the days of the Noah. You're not even close. You know what the difference is? In the days of Noah, there was no city to point at. It was every city, every county, every farmhouse, every campground. It was everything everywhere. You know, folks, I, I, I want to remind us, sex is a, sex is a good thing. God, God gave us sex, right? That's not a product of evolution. It's not a product of biology. It didn't come from Satan. It didn't come from the world. It is a gift of God. 
And humanity picked up the command of go forth and multiply. And boy, they multiplied. We saw that in Genesis chapter 5 last week. Matter of fact, I've seen some interesting, I I don't think you'd call it research. I guess you'd call it math. Because not only were people having a lot of kids, but they were having a lot of kids for hundreds of years. And one guy doing the math suggested that the population at this time may have been very similar to the 1900s, the 2000s. There there may have very well been 5 billion, 6 billion, 7 billion people on the planet at this time. And what were they like? Violent and incredibly immoral. Violent and incredibly immoral. Now, you know, if we just stopped right here, I I think I could say, okay, God, you've got my approval. I understand. Go ahead and do what you need to do. Because God's waiting for my approval. I'm very confident of that. But you see, we can't stop right there. Because if there's 5 billion people on the planet, let's say there's not anywhere near that. Let's say there's 500 million people on the planet. They couldn't all be adults, could they? Some of those people have to be children. And I don't even mean 16 and 17-year-olds. I mean like 3 and 4-year-olds. Now, I, I think we should... Hey, we're, we're going to trust God, right? But I think we should struggle with that a little bit. God, it, it, it seems like a lot of... What would be the word we use? Innocent? Seems like a lot of innocent people get swept up in this flood. Innocent. You know, we, we use a phrase in our day. I don't know if it's unique to America. Imagine all cultures have something like this, but we talk about stealing the, the innocence of a child, right? And that, that can mean a lot of things. You know, this end of the spectrum, showing a child, letting a child be in the midst of something they shouldn't, all the way down to something incredibly abusive and criminal-like. And now that, that child has had their innocence stolen. The child didn't do anything wrong. It is no fault of their ours, but the stain is now on them, right? And it doesn't have to be, but sadly, many of them will grow up and live out that stain. It can't, can't be undone, certainly not without Christ. Now, a lot of times when we think of the innocence of a child being stolen, we're thinking in very singular situations. But is not our nation right now showing us a culture that wants to steal the innocence of children? Not This isn't an isolated news story in some weird school in a state none of us would live in. No, in, in, in schools sweeping throughout the country, they are now, and I, I'm just going to say this as simply as I can, they're, gonna, they're trying to shove sex and sexuality into the face of three and four-year-olds. You realize, it, it, of course they're innocent. Of course it's not their fault. But we're going to raise an entirely perverted generation. You know what else we don't grapple with when we think of trying to understand what, what God is doing here with two and three-year-olds? It's not God's sin that did that. 
It's not God's sin that did that. It's all of the adults around them. I've said it before, I'll say it again. This is an incredible good place to say it. You have never in your life committed a private personal sin. You have never in your life committed a sin that whatever consequences come from that, you could decide where it was contained and where it went. It it, it is amazing the consequences we not only bring into our lives, but into everything around us, and then we blame God. Want to know what He's doing here. Want Him to stand up and, and answer for Himself. Long and short of it is, while I think there are no unique sins other than whatever's going on with the, these Nephilites, my guess is the sins of that day are very, very similar to ours. Greater depth, greater coverage. And I just have to trust God that he said it, it, it's got to stop right here. And this is where God leads. Now I get to the hard part. This is where then God says, I am sorry I ever made you. And he uses words like like grieve and regret. Have you ever regretted something? Yeah, we all have regretted something, right? We use that word all the time. I I, I regret. And, And when I say I regret, sometimes, you know, I regret. Hey, I had a choice between A and B. I I chose B and oh my gosh, now I'm here in B and I wish I chose A. I'm not even talking about a moral decision. I just wish I'd made another decision. Then sometimes it's not even a decision. Sometimes I'm not even choosing. Right? It just ended up. Oh man, this is not what I wanted. This is not where I wanted to be. Gosh, I hope your only regret is that you chose the wrong thing on the menu at the restaurant last night. But we regret much greater things. Bottom line is, the reason you and I regret is because we don't have all the knowledge. We regret because we make mistakes. We regret because we're not... Wait a minute. How can a word like that be applied to God? How can an all-knowing God, how can a wise God regret? God, this is not at all how I understand you. This seems to... Like, God, did you not see where this was going? Did this get out of control for you? Did... What's going on here, God? And uh, folks, this is a big one to grapple with. And I'll tell you, I had a very unique experience sitting in my office look, looking. You know, when I study a passage, I want to make sure I'm, as much as I can, I'm saying the right thing. And, you know, you come to passages. Hey, I want to see what a commentary says about this. I want to see what another preacher, particularly one I like, I want to see what he said about this. And I'm going to go and I'm going to study and I'm going to try to understand. Before I'd read or seen anything, I had a very unique experience trying to understand God regretting. And I feel like right there at my desk, God picked me up and the Holy Spirit carried me to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what happened there, right? Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane. He gets down and and prays. He's, He's moments away from being arrested, hours away from being crucified. And you remember his prayer, right? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Let this cut past as a real fancy way of saying, I don't want to do this. You realize that's what that prayer is saying, right? I, I don't want to do this. What, what, what is Jesus saying? Did, did, he, did he get scared? Did he change his mind? 
Hey, Father, I know when I left heaven, you and I, when we love these people, we're going to do what it takes the same. I've been walking around them for 33 years and it ain't worth it. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Listen, whatever way we try to understand that prayer, it doesn't seem like something God, all-powerful, all-knowing God, should be struggling with. Now, let me tell you how I have, for decades now, answered what's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've stood in this pulpit and said it. I've said we're seeing the humanity of Jesus, right? Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is 100% man. And what we're seeing is the very real humanity of Christ because he's not pretending to be a human. He's not trying on our clothing for a moment. He is a very real, entirely human person bearing literally the weight of the world. And so this is his humanity crying out. And it's not, it's not that I was wrong in saying that. But I'm not entirely right either. Because the way I just said that makes Jesus have like, sound like he has a split personality. Like he's over here, oh, look, he's being a human. He's hungry. He's tired. He's praying, God, I don't want to do this. Oh, look, over here, he's being God. He's walking on water. Hey, Jesus, your deity is showing. You know, like he has a switch that he's turning off and on. No, that's wrong. He is entirely God, entirely human, entirely all of the time. What the Garden of Gethsemane is showing us, what Genesis chapter 6 is showing us, is that God feels pain. Just saying the word pain sounds like a limitation, an inability to control. Folks, we're not saying God didn't, we're not saying God didn't see this coming because He did. We're not saying God can't deal with it because He can. We're not saying God can't have victory over it because He did, He can, He will. What we're saying is our God is not a stoic, unfeeling, removed, faraway God. Oh, he's, listen, God is high, God is holy, God is transcendent. That's the word we're thinking of. That is a character quality of God. It means that God is in you, but you are not God. There is a distinction between God and his creation. He is above his creation. But, but that transcendence does not make him far away and unfeeling. He feels when we lie to each other. He feels when we ravage each other. He feels when we hate each other. He feels that perversion. And it grieves him. You know, this is not the only spot in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 4. When you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit came and lived in you. I like to say, sometimes say, he got stuck living in me. Because I guarantee you, I have carried the Holy Spirit into some conversations. I've carried the Holy Spirit into some thoughts. I've carried the Holy Spirit into some places. And it grieved him that we were there. It grieved him what he had to listen to. Ephesians chapter 4 says, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. He, he feels that. Jesus felt all that he was about to pay for at the cross. But he got up from that cross and he went, or he got up from the Garden of Gethsemane and he went to the cross to crush the head of Satan. 
Just like God is rising from this moment to move forward righteously, justly, holy, in truth to crush. This is what is happening. He is crushing what Satan has done inside of humanity. Not just morally, even physically. Even biologically. He is crushing that. And yet there's grace. For Noah found favor. That word favor is, is our word grace. You remember the word grace means unmerited favor. You, did, you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It, it is a gift. It's grace. So we hear that Noah gets this grace, but then look how Noah's described, a righteous man, the only blameless person at that time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Now, I don't know about y'all, that sounds to me like he earned a ticket on the ark. He's better than everybody else. No. Folks, Noah was not better than anybody, everybody else. I don't think Noah had anything to do with what's go- whatever is going on in verses 1 to 4, but he probably had something to do with a lot of the other stuff going on in the world. Just like me. Did you know I am righteous and blameless? Did you know I, I walk with God? And it's not because I'm so much better than what's out there. It's because I know where to go when I live like they do out there. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ, my faith in what he did for me at the cross, that I can have peace with God, that I can have right standing with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. It is because of being in Christ that I no longer have to fear condemnation. Romans 8 1. Have I done things that make me blameworthy? Yes, I have. But all my sin is under the blood. All my sin is at the cross. And now it can't be blamed anymore. This passage is not saying, look how perfectly Noah lived. Boy, he didn't live like any of them out there. No, he did, but he knew where to go with it. And he was righteous and blameless And he walked with God, just like I do, just like you do, just like you can if you've not yet come to that place. You know, it's interesting. So there's Noah on the boat, but he ain't on that boat alone, is he? You know, as it says, the only, the only blameless person living. Now, I'm not 100% sure what that's supposed to mean about the rest of his family. His wife is on the boat. His three sons are on the boat. They're married. Their wives are on the boat. Now, only tends to mean only. I I don't know if it's just Noah as the governmental head of this family, and they're also all walking with God, or, or Noah's the only one in his family doing that. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? There's people in here right now. Man, you love God. You're walking with God. You are righteous and blameless by the blood of Christ, but in your family... You're pretty lonely. You, you stand alone in your family. I, it's grace. When it says that Noah found favor, that's not a statement about how God liked one person. It's a statement that God had grace on humanity. All of humanity is going to be wiped out and yet not. I'm going to do in humanity what needs to be done, but I'm going to stick with them. You say, well, how how do you know? Because you're here. 
If there's no Noah, we're not here. A whole bunch of fish and nobody to fish. That's something, isn't it, folks? We can so desperately grieve God. But he sticks with you. Let's pray. Father, there's a a lot to understand here. I'm not sure I've handled this entirely like what you communicated. Lord, I trust that you understand our difficulty in putting some of these things together. Lord, I hope nobody in here heard me put a tidy little bow on why two-year-olds were swept up in this flood. Lord, no matter what kind of understanding we have about sin and holiness and corruption, that's, that's hard. Lord, I want to trust you with that. I want to trust you with that. I want to not believe I have a greater sense of justice and righteousness than you do. Lord, one thing I can certainly understand in this passage is we really can be horrible. Thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for sticking with us. I thank you that in my horribleness there is very much an opportunity to finish this life called righteous, blameless, and walks with God. But by you. But by you. In Jesus' name, amen.